Well, please, as you uh, sit back down, take hold of a Bible, a church Bible, and uh, back to page 1088 to John 19 as we continue this uh, short series from the end of John as we uh, approach Easter. John chapter 19. Uh, When last uh, summer we were reorganising the office space in the church centre, I suggested to uh, our church manager, Martin, that perhaps we ought to put staff names on their office doors. Uh, I have to say, he was less than enthusiastic. Uh, You don't want to do that, he said. People change as soon as you put their name on their office door. He's probably right, isn't he? It's amazing how quickly people are seduced by the trappings of position and power, if indeed you can call the rabbit hutches that we call uh, offices, the trappings of position and power in the church centre. But it's amazing how people change, isn't it? Suddenly it's my office and my desk and my chair. I remember a summer job I had as a student and the department I was in was policed by a young woman who labelled everything. She labelled her pens, her stapler, her scissors. If she could have labelled the air around her desk, she would have done that too. And of course, the trappings of position and power become more impressive with promotion. So the Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott, lives in an 18th century grace and favour apartment in Admiralty Arch in Whitechapel. And for weekends... He has the use of a 21-room pile, 214-acre official country residence at Dorney Wood. It's not quite as good if you're the vicar of Fullwood Church. Mind you, Lambeth Palace, the official residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, isn't exactly a two-up-two-down terrace in Brixton. All of which makes the account of Jesus' crucifixion so utterly astonishing. Shocking. Bewildering, even. For here we read of the coronation of a king without any of the trappings of position and power. Here the one who was crowned with thorns meets the violent and shameful death of a first century criminal. As with the other gospel accounts of Jesus' death, John's record is remarkable for its brevity and restraint. Jesus carried his own cross, verse 17. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. There's no doubt that crucifixion is one of the most barbaric means of execution ever conceived. Nailed to a wooden beam, the victims of Roman crucifixion died a slow, painful and distressing death. And yet, unlike Mel Gibson's film, The Passion, it is not the violence of Jesus' death that the Gospel writers dwell on. Now, of course, Jesus' physical suffering was real and you suspect unimaginably terrible. And perhaps that was better understood by the first readers of this account than it is by us. Nevertheless, Jesus' suffering was not only physical. He also suffered the shame of being crucified between guilty criminals and the sorrow of being separated from his father. But the astonishing thing is that Jesus is God's 
suffering king. And that's the first thing to note from these verses. Jesus is God's suffering king, verse 19 to 22. You see, the hope of the Old Testament centred on two figures. A king who would rule and a servant who would suffer. And such hopes find their fulfilment in one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God's suffering king. So Paul writes to the Philippians in the words that we read earlier in the service, of the one who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And in the end, you have to say that this king really did make himself nothing, didn't he? For what trappings of position and power did he cling to? Alone and despised and naked. He was crowned with thorns, not on a throne, but on a cross. George MacLeod, the founder of the Iona community, puts it bluntly. Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. On the town garbage heap. At a crossroad so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin. At the kind of place where cynics talk smut and soldiers gamble. See, to those who looked on, Jesus' ministry seemed a pitiful and tragic failure. And yet in the perfect plan and purpose of God, it was not a desperate defeat, but a decisive victory. A victory that was unwittingly proclaimed to the entire world through the pathetic power play of a compromised and vacillating pagan ruler. Verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read... Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And you know, for Pilate, it was a, a final opportunity to gain the upper hand on Jesus' Jewish prosecutors. Forced to accede to their demands for Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate mocked them at the end by the sign that he had hung on Jesus' cross. You see, here, Pilate proclaimed in Jesus' death the very thing that they sought to deny in his life. Verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claims to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now Pilate, of course, thought that the last word was his. He condemned an innocent man and used Jesus' death to score party political points. But you know the last word was God's. Announced in Aramaic, Latin and Greek, the major languages of the known world. Why? So that everyone could read it. So that everyone would know 
that Jesus of Nazareth is the King of the Jews. For as Jesus himself puts it in John 4, salvation. Salvation for the world is from the Jews. And John writes these things so that you and I will believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God's suffering king for the world. And you must believe that Jesus is God's suffering king. Why? Because as John puts it at the end of chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John Stott explained the cross like this. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's why you must believe that Jesus is God's suffering king. For without him you face eternal death, and in him you can know eternal life. That is why this kind of course that Paul mentioned before, the Open to Question course, is so important. For if these things are true, it is not a matter of indifference, it is an issue of eternity. So if you've been coming over the last few weeks, maybe you're getting married in the summer, maybe you're just visiting, this will be a great place to go and find out whether Jesus really is the suffering king. Because a lot hangs on it. Now, of course, if you're one of the many here who have already believed that Jesus is God's suffering king, then you need to go on believing it. Because sometimes you will be tempted to stop believing in Jesus. Maybe because of some moral challenge in your life. The temptation to moral compromise is invariably accompanied by doubts about Christian truth. See, how many of us have known people who stopped living God's way and then suddenly started doubting God's saviour. Is it really true? But if Jesus really is God's suffering king, it is a reminder that I can be forgiven by God's king, but also that I need to live under the rule of God's king. Sometimes you'll be tempted to stop believing in Jesus, not because of a moral challenge in your life, but because of some intellectual challenge. Now, recently a number of folk from this church and others have put together a booklet entitled Jesus Christ, the Supreme Saviour. It's a short and I think a helpful attempt to present a biblical approach to the interfaith debate in the Diocese of Sheffield. My my contribution was a few footnotes, but there are some very helpful uh, words in there. And unsurprisingly, and perhaps inevitably, it's received, not received a universally warm reception. See, people are happy with Jesus as a suffering king, but not God's suffering king who is the way and without whom no one can come to the Father. So one local curate wrote to the Sheffield Telegraph complaining that the booklet encourages, quote, an I'm right, you're wrong attitude. 
an attitude that she labels as supremacist. Of course, the interesting thing about her own view is that she clearly considers that she's right and that the authors of the booklet are wrong. And so in attempting to take the high moral ground, she merely hoists herself on her own petard. Of course, it's not easy to believe that Jesus Christ is the supreme saviour in a society that says that you can believe what you like so long as you are sincere. But as Os Guinness points out, belief in something doesn't make it true. Only truth makes a belief true. Without truth, a belief may be only speculation plus sincerity. You see, Jesus' claim to be God's saviour is radically exclusive. He is the way, the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through him. And yet if his claim to be God's saviour is radically exclusive, his offer of God's salvation is remarkably inclusive. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And God announced to the world in Aramaic, Latin and Greek that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so you must believe and you must go on believing that Jesus is God's suffering king. Well, secondly, Jesus is God's sovereign king, verses 23 to 24. Jesus is God's sovereign king. Last summer, a number of us visited our, our partner churches in Romania. And uh, in the village where we were staying, uh, there is a, a big and impressive, very western-looking house. Uh, it's the home of the old mayor. Uh, what is interesting is not particularly the size of the house, but the quality of the road outside the house. A few months before he lost the mayoral elections and left office, a well-built road was suddenly extended as far as his newly constructed home. And about 10 metres after his house, the road becomes a more customary Romanian pothole dirt track. See how very different the world's leadership to God's. The world desperately tries to hang on to the trappings of position and power and Jesus willingly surrenders everything. And so John's account moves from the sickening picture of barrack room humour, the ill-disciplined soldiers beating their thorn-crowned purple-robed prisoner, to the final desperate scenes of shame and humiliation. God's king, robbed of clothes and dignity, the creator of the universe, left naked with the casting of lots. And yet, as Paul pointed out last week, all is not as it seems. You see, the terrible abuse of the soldier's power is at one and the same time the sovereign surrender of divine power. Halfway through verse 24, this happened, John says, that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's a phrase that seems to appear with increasing frequency, the closer you come to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the cross is at one and the same time the terrible responsibility of sinful humanity and the perfect plan and purpose of God. For Jesus is God's sovereign king. 
As Jesus puts it in John 10, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And lest we doubt that, John reminds us that even the apparently random gambling of soldiers' lots is the sovereign plan and purpose of Almighty God. Jesus is God's sovereign king. Now, of course, there are many in the church who doubt that and many more in the world who deride it. Some within the church talk as if it is impossible for God to know the future without it compromising human freedom. And so God is the great risk-taker and we, together with him, must work and hope that all in the end will be well. But can not the God who looks ahead through the centuries and determines even the fall of a Roman soldier's dice not bring to completion all that he has planned and promised in his Son? To the world, the idea that God is sovereign is at best naive and at worst dangerous. So a conference recently celebrated 30 years since the publication of Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. The book in which, as one writer puts it, Dawkins sets out his cold-eyed vision of how bodies, family and society are shaped. See, life, according to Dawkins, is nothing but blind, pitiless chance. All is random. Nothing has meaning. Now, interestingly, Dawkins protests that the world is still a source of wonder. Yet he has no rational case for such belief. As Professor David Belinsky put it, why should Dawkins, of all people, find the universe wonderful? If he also believes it is a largely self-sustaining material object, something bigger than a head of cabbage, but not appreciably different in kind. The whole place supposedly has no meaning, no point, no purpose, and no reason for existence beyond itself. Sounds horrible to me. Wonder is the last reaction I'd expect. A universe that is nothing more than a collection of atoms whizzing around in the void is a material slum. Well, according to the Bible, Jesus is God's sovereign king and behind the events of history is not molecular randomness, but the sovereign plan and purposes of God. And if that is true, if Jesus is God's sovereign king, is he not worth trusting? Now, God has so worked in history in Jesus. Sovereign over even the smallest details of Jesus' death, even over the heartless gambling of first century soldiers. If God is sovereign, can he not deliver for you all that he has promised for you in his word? If you trust this king, God will give you life. Forgiveness, a new beginning, a certain future. Life is not meaningless, but meaningful. And if you already believe that Jesus is God's sovereign king, you need to go on believing it. Why? Because whatever this world throws at you, 
Whatever this world throws at you, be it disappointment or illness or failure or divorce or depression, whatever this world throws at you, the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus because Jesus is God's sovereign king. Thirdly and finally, Jesus is God's compassionate king. Verses 25 to 27. In these last couple of verses, John records one of the last things that Jesus did before he died. Alongside the callous self-interest of the soldiers, John records the remarkable self-giving of Jesus. John's words are, are brief, but incredibly moving. A son dies and his mother watches. Can anything be more terrible than that? Yet verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. See, why did John include these tender words? After all, all the Gospel accounts are very selective reports. John himself, in the very last verse in this Gospel, says that Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Jesus did many things, yet John chose to include this one. Why? So that we will know that God's king is fundamentally compassionate. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. And God's king reveals to us the very nature of God himself. So Philip asks that extraordinary question in John 14. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus' response is even more extraordinary. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God's compassionate King and he shows us what God is really like. And yet sometimes it is actually hard to believe that God is compassionate towards us. Maybe we think that somehow we've put ourselves beyond God's love and forgiveness. Maybe we think that we have blown it just once too often. We look at our lives at the wrong that we have done and the good that we have not done. And and we know that we cannot save ourselves. Can God really still be compassionate to somebody like me? Sometimes we doubt that God is compassionate towards us because of the things that happen in life. Can God really be compassionate when he allows this to happen in my life? When he allows this broken relationship, this terrible injustice, this appalling illness, can I really believe that God is compassionate towards me? Someone said to me recently, I feel like God is treating me like a punch bag. Have you never felt that? And then you read these words. God in human history, beaten to a pulp, 
nailed to a cross, stripped, naked and mocked, and in the midst of such agony and shame, tender words and provision for a grieving mother, and you know that Jesus really is God's compassionate King. And you know, all these things are written that you might believe and go on believing that Jesus is the Christ, God's suffering King, God's sovereign King, God's compassionate King. And yet your response has to be more than understanding truth in your head. It has to be an exercise of the will. Our mind that understands a heart that is warm, but it must be a will that obeys. It's striking that in John 2, Mary approaches Jesus as a mother. Uh, at the wedding of Cana, she tells Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus responds as a gentle rebuke, dear woman, why do you involve me? She didn't really understand who Jesus was or what he came to do. And yet, here in John 19, Jesus' mother stands with the other disciples near to the cross. And she experiences the tender compassion of her Saviour in almost the same words. Dear woman, here is your son. It is not enough to know in your head that Jesus is God's king. You, you have to approach him in the right way. You have to trust that he is God's king. A king that has come to rescue and rule people like you and me. In Jesus' own words, you have to believe and go on believing that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children for, or fields for Jesus' sake will receive a hundred times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. These things are written that you might believe and go on believing that Jesus is God's suffering king, that he is God's sovereign king, that he is for you God's compassionate king. Well, let's pray, shall we? Just a moment's quiet as we just think through the enormity of these ancient words. These things are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Father, we thank you that in giving to us the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is for us a suffering, sovereign and compassionate king. And we pray for each of us here that we might believe and go on believing that in him and through his death there is eternal life. For your name's sake. Amen.